Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In the last episode, we told the story of Poland's position at the beginning of World War II, crushed between two attacking armies whose intention it was to wipe the Polish country, the people, and their culture off the face of the earth. We're not overlooking the plight of the Jews throughout all of Europe, as Germany took on the mission of exterminating their entire race. It has been well documented in hundreds of books and movies, but the annihilation or communist reprogramming of the mainly Catholic and Orthodox Slavic peoples and cultures of Ukraine, Poland, and surrounding countries, not just during the war, but for decades afterward by Soviet Russia, has not received nearly as much attention. As Winston Churchill once said, those who fail to learn their history are doomed to repeat it. Before we go any further, we offer the same disclaimer here that we offered in Part 1. By using the word Soviet Russia, we are discussing the war crimes and cover-up associated with the Soviet government and its acting military arm of secret police, the NKVD, and subsequent generations of it, from 1939 to 1990 and beyond, to the people of Russia who have done everything they can to distance themselves from the old Soviet ways and helped to bring about perestroika and glasnost, our hearts go out to you, especially the younger generations of Russia, for what you have accomplished politically as you continue to deal with leadership which is still all too closely connected with the past. When we use the term socialism, we're using it as the Soviets used it. And yes, unlike our system in America, they controlled all manufacturing and they severely limited ownership of property, claiming that all property belonged to the state, a concept that differs greatly from the, quote, democratic socialism, end quote, we see today, which is a discussion for another time, but still, inarguably, representing a shift away from laissez-faire capitalism to a government-controlled economy in which the wealth is forcibly shared, meaning taken by threat of fines or imprisonment in always increasing quantities from producers of that wealth and distributed among those who produce less to nothing in the name of compassion, but to the overall benefit of the ruling party. That, many say, is a fairly accurate description of democratic socialism. Like I said, a great discussion for another time. To all the generations of Poles, Russians, Czechs, Ukrainians, Moldavians, Georgians, and others who seek to maintain or increase their independence and freedom. You are the hope of the future of Europe and the need for a strong NATO alliance. We all share the same prayer for peace, freedom, and prosperity in the 21st century. Benjamin B. Fisher's article for CIA.gov titled Stalin's Killing Field begins with these facts. For 50 years, the Soviet Union concealed the truth. The cover-up began in April 1943, almost immediately after the Red Army had recaptured Smolensk. The NKVD destroyed a cemetery the Germans had permitted the Polish cross to build and removed other evidence. In January 1944, Moscow appointed its own investigative body, known as the Burdenko Commission, after the prominent surgeon who chaired it. Predictably, it concluded that the Polish prisoners had been murdered in 1941 during the German occupation, not in 1940. To bolster its claim, the commission hosted an international press conference at Katyn on the 22nd of January, 1944. Three American journalists and Kathleen Harriman, 
the 25-year-old daughter of U.S. Ambassador Averill Harriman, attended. After viewing exhibits of planted evidence, they endorsed the Burdenko Commission's findings. Ms. Harriman later repudiated her 1944 statement before the House Select Committee. Eight days later, the Soviets held a religious and military ceremony attended by a color guard from the Polish division of the Red Army to honor the victims of German fascist invaders. A film was made and shown for propaganda purposes. Katyn was a forbidden topic in post-war Poland. Censors suppressed all references to it. Even mentioning the atrocity meant risking reprisal. While Katyn was erased from Poland's official history, it could not be erased from historical memory. In 1981, Solidarity erected a memorial with the simple inscription, Katyn, 1940. Even that was too much for the Soviets. The police confiscated it. Later, the Polish government, on cue from Moscow, created another memorial. It read, To the Polish soldiers, victims of Hitlerite fascism, reposing in the soil of Katyn. Talk about the ultimate insult. But remember, without freedom of speech in a socialist-governed country, say one word about it, and you're dead. Katyn played a convoluted role in U.S. politics and U.S.-Soviet relations. America knew the truth. Two U.S. servicemen brought from a POW camp in Germany were at Katyn in 1943, in the middle of the war, when Berlin held an international news conference there to publicize the atrocity. The ranking officer was Colonel John H. Van Vliet, a fourth-generation West Pointer. After returning to Washington in 1945, he wrote a report concluding that the Soviets, not the Germans, were responsible. He gave the report to Major General Clayton Bissell, General George Marshall's Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence, and he promptly deep-sixed it. Meanwhile, the slow process of discovery of the truth had been taking place in the following ways. The question about the fate of the Polish prisoners was raised soon after Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion of Soviet Union, which began in June 1941. The Polish government in exile and the Soviet government signed the sikorsky maisky Agreement, which announced the willingness of both to fight together against Nazi Germany and for a Polish army to be formed on Soviet territory. The Polish general, Vladislaw Anders, began organizing this army, and soon he requested information about the missing Polish officers. During a personal meeting, Stalin assured him and Vladislaw Sikorsky, the Polish prime minister, that all the Poles were freed and that not all could be accounted because the Soviets lost track of them in Manchuria, which was a load of Russian horse manure. Joseph Zapsky, a Polish artist, author, critic, and pacifist, who was one of the 365 Poles who escaped the Katyn Forest Massacre, investigated the fate of Polish officers between 1941 and 1942, his motive being that among them were many of his closest friends, and word that they had disappeared in Manchuria just didn't ring true to him. When he eventually did find the truth, he joined the Polish army to defeat Germany in order that he could survive to go after the NKVD. In the process, he was honored with Poland's highest military medal for bravery. In 1942, with the territory around Smolensk under German occupation, captive Polish railroad workers heard from the locals about a mass grave of Polish soldiers at Kozelsk near Katyn. 
finding one of the graves, they reported it to the Polish underground state. The discovery was not seen as important, as nobody thought the discovered grave could contain so many victims. In early 1943, Rudolf Christoph Freiherr von Gersdorf, a German officer serving as the intelligence liaison between the Wehrmacht's Army Group Centra and Abwehr, received reports about mass graves of Polish military officers. These reports stated that the graves were in the forest of Goat Hill, near Katyn. He passed the reports to his superiors, and when the German top decision-makers in Berlin received those reports, Joseph Goebbels saw this discovery as an excellent tool to drive a wedge between Poland, the Western Allies, and the Soviet Union, and reinforcement for the Nazi propaganda line about the horrors of Bolshevism and American and British subservience to it. After extensive preparation on the 13th of April, Reichsender Berlin broadcast to the world that German military forces in the Katyn Forest near Smolensk had uncovered a ditch that was 28 meters long and 16 meters wide. That'd be 92 feet by 52 feet in which the bodies of 3,000 officers were piled up in 12 layers. The broadcast went on to charge the Soviets with carrying out the massacre in 1940. The Germans brought in a European Red Cross committee called the Katyn Commission, comprising 12 forensic experts and their staff from Belgium, Bulgaria, Croatia, Denmark, Finland, France, Hungary, Italy, the Netherlands, Romania, Sweden, and Slovakia. The Germans were so intent on proving that the Soviets were behind the massacre that they even included some Allied prisoners of war, among them writer Ferdinand Gotol, the Polish Home Army prisoner from Powiak. The Katyn massacre was beneficial to Nazi Germany, which used it to discredit the Soviet Union. In April 1943, the Polish government in exile, led by Sikorsky, insisted on bringing the matter to the negotiation table with the Soviets and on opening an investigation by the International Red Cross. Sikorsky would pay for this later when his plane mysteriously crashed, killing all aboard but the pilot. Stalin, in response, accused the Polish government of collaborating with Nazi Germany and broke off diplomatic relations with it, obviously not wanting to come under the investigating eye, what there was of it, of the Red Cross. The Soviet Union, having placed Sikorsky and the Polish government in exile on their problem to be dealt with later list, started a campaign to get the Western allies to recognize the pro-Soviet government in exile of the Union of Polish Patriots led by Wanda Wasiluska. She was one of Stalin's favorites, a Polish and Soviet novelist and communist political activist who played an important role in the creation of a Polish division of the Soviet Red Army during World War II and the formation of the People's Republic of Poland. Her books on socialist doctrine went on to replace school books in Poland for decades, helping to crush individualism and Polish pride for all time. She was an all-star Soviet socialist indoctrinator, and statues and plaques in her image couldn't go up fast enough, although Stalin's image was on every window, sign, public square, classroom wall, and street corner, so she had to make do. Having retaken the Katyn area almost immediately after the Red Army had recaptured Smolensk around September-October 1943, NKVD forces began a cover-up operation 
A cemetery the Germans had permitted the Polish Red Cross to build was destroyed and other evidence removed. Witnesses were interviewed and threatened with arrest for collaborating with the Nazis if their testimonies disagreed with the official line. As none of the documents found on the dead had dates later than April 1940, the Soviet secret police planted false evidence to place the apparent time of the massacre in the summer of 1941 when the German military had controlled the area. A preliminary report was issued by NKVD operatives Vesevalod Merkulov and Sergei Kruglov, dated 10th of January 1944, concluding that the Polish officers were shot by German soldiers. In 1944, President Roosevelt assigned Captain George Earle, his special emissary to the Balkans, to compile information on Katyn. Earle did so, using contacts in Bulgaria and Romania. He, too, concluded that the Soviet Union was guilty. FDR rejected Earle's conclusion, saying that he was convinced of Nazi Germany's responsibility. The report was suppressed. When Earle requested permission to publish his findings, the president gave him a written order to desist. Earle, who had been a Roosevelt family friend, spent the rest of the war in a remote post in American Samoa. True thirds. In 1949, an American journalist assembled a committee of prominent Americans, which included former OSS chief General William Donovan and future DCI Alan Dulles, to press for an official inquiry. But it went nowhere. Then came the Korean War and concern that communist forces were executing American GIs. Katyn may well have been a blueprint for Korea, one congressman declared. In September 1951, the House of Representatives appointed a select committee to hold hearings. It was chaired by Representative Ray J. Madden and was popularly known as the Madden Committee. Although not without political or propaganda overtones, the hearings were the most comprehensive effort to date to gather facts and establish responsibility. The committee heard 81 witnesses, examined 183 exhibits, and took more than 100 depositions. The hearings gave post-Roosevelt Democrats a chance to deflect charges of having betrayed Poland and lost China at Yalta and offered Republicans an opportunity to court voters of Polish and other East European ancestry who had traditionally favored Democrats. Meanwhile, the Soviets obliterated references to Katyn on maps and in official reference works. Then, in 1969, Moscow did something strange that many believe was further calculated to confuse the issue further. It chose a small village named Hatton, spelled K-H-A-T-Y-N, as opposed to Katyn, K-A-T-Y-N, as the site for Belarusia's National War Memorial. There was no apparent reason for the selection. Hatton was one of 9,200 Belarusian villages the Germans had destroyed and one of more than a 100 where they'd killed civilians in retaliation for partisan attacks. In Latin transliteration, however, Katyn and Hatton look and sound alike, though they are spelled and pronounced quite differently in Russian and Belarusian. When President Nixon visited the USSR in July of 1974, he toured the Hatton Memorial at his host's insistence. Sensing that the Soviets were exploiting the visit for propaganda purposes, the New York Times headlined its coverage of the tour. Quote, 
Nixon sees Hatton, a Soviet memorial, not Katyn Forest. In retrospect, the Times got it right. During the Vietnam War, the Soviets frequently took visiting U.S. peace activists to Hatton. Here's what really happened in Hatton and why the Soviets deviously chose this as the site to honor Katyn. Hatton was a village of 26 houses and 156 inhabitants in Belarus, in the Minsk region of Russia, 50 kilometers away from Minsk. On the 22nd of March, 1943, practically the entire population of the village was massacred by the Schutzmannschaft Battalion 118. The battalion was formed in July of 1942 in Kiev and was made up mostly of Ukrainian nationalist collaborators from western Ukraine and Hewis, assisted by the Durlevanger Waffen SS Special Battalion. The massacre was not an unusual incident in what is now modern-day Belarus during World War II. At least 5,295 Belarusian settlements were burned and destroyed by the Nazis, and often all their inhabitants were killed, some amounting up to 1,500 victims as a punishment for collaboration with partisans. In the Vitebsk region, 243 villages were burned down twice, 83 villages three times, and 22 villages were burned down four or more times. In the Minsk region, 92 villages were burned down twice, 40 villages three times, nine villages four times, and six villages five or more times. Altogether, over two million people were killed in Belarus during the three years of Nazi occupation, almost a quarter of the region's population. On the 22nd of March, 1943, a German convoy was attacked by Soviet partisans near Koziri village, just six kilometers away from Hatton, resulting in the deaths of four police officers of the Schumannschaft Battalion 118, which consisted mostly of Ukrainian collaborators and Red Army prisoner of war volunteers and deserters. Among the dead was Hauptmann Hans Velke, the battalion's commanding officer. Velke was an Olympic champion in Berlin in 1936 and an acquaintance of Adolf Hitler. Troops from the Durlevanger Brigade, a unit mostly comprised of criminals recruited for anti-partisan duties, entered the village and drove the inhabitants from their houses and into a shed, which was then covered with straw and set on fire. The trapped people did manage to break down the front doors, but in trying to escape, were killed by machine gun fire. 147 people, including 75 children under 16 years of age, were killed, burned, shot, or suffocated in fire. The village was then looted and burned to the ground. Only eight inhabitants of the village survived, from whom six were recognized as witnesses to the tragedy, five children and a single adult. By 2008, only two of them were still alive to tell the story. They include 12-year-old Anton Iosevich Baranovsky. He was left for dead due to the wounds in both legs. His injuries were treated by partisans. Five months after the opening of the memorial, Anton died in unclear circumstances. The only adult survivor of the Hatton Massacre, 56-year-old village smith Yusuf Kaminsky, also wounded and burnt, recovered consciousness after the executioners had left. He supposedly found his burned son, who later died in his arms. This incident was later commemorated in the form of a statue at the Hatton Memorial. 
another boy, Alexander Petrovich Zalabkovich, who was 12 years old at the time, also survived. When the Nazi soldiers almost surrounded the village, his mother woke him up and put him on a horse on which he escaped to a nearby village. After the war, he served in the armed forces and later became a reserve lieutenant colonel. Vladimir Antonovich Yaskovich managed to survive by hiding in a potato pit 200 meters from his family house. Two Nazi soldiers noticed the boy, yet they spared him. Only God knows why. Vladimir noted that they spoke German between themselves, not Ukrainian. Early that morning, Vladimir's sister, Sofia Antonovna Yaskovich, hid in the cellar during the tragedy. As an adult, she worked as a typist and now lives in Minsk. Viktor Andreevich Zolubkovich, a seven-year-old boy, survived the fire in the shed under the corpse of his mother. As an adult, he worked at the design office of Precise Engineering and also lives in Minsk. Two other Katyn women survived because they were away from the village that day. Tatyana Vasilyevna Karabin was visiting relatives in a neighboring village, Serednyaya. Sofia Klimovich, a relative of Tatyana Karaban, was also visiting a nearby village. After the war, she worked at the memorial for several years. The commander of one of the platoons of the 118th Schumannshaft Battalion, Ukrainian Vasil Maleshko, was tried in a Soviet court and executed in 1975. The chief of staff of 118th Schumannshaft Battalion, Ukrainian Grigory Vasyura, was tried in Minsk in 1986 and found guilty of all his crimes. He was sentenced to death by the verdict of the military tribunal of the Belarusian military district. At least the Germans were being punished for war crimes, not Russians, however. The case and the trial of the main executioner of Hatton was not given much publicity in the media. The leaders of the Soviet republics worried about the inviolability of unity between the Belarusian and Ukrainian peoples. Hatton became a symbol of mass killings of the civilian population during the fighting between partisans. German troops and collaborators. In 1969, it was named the National War Memorial of the Belarusian SSR. Among the best recognized symbols of the memorial complex is a monument with three birch trees with an eternal flame instead of a fourth tree, a tribute to one in every four Belarusians who died in the war. There is also a statue of Yusuf Kaminsky carrying his dying son and a wall with niches to represent the victims of all the concentration camps, with large niches representing those with more than 20,000 victims. Bells ring every 30 seconds to commemorate the rate at which Belarusian lives were lost throughout the duration of the Second World War. Part of the memorial is a cemetery of villages with 185 tombs. Each of those 185 tombs symbolizes a particular village in Belarus that was torched along with its population. Among the foreign leaders who have visited the Hatton Memorial during their time in office are Richard Nixon of the U.S., Fidel Castro of Cuba, Gandhi of India, Arafat of the PLO, and Jiang Zemin of China. According to British-Polish historian and author Norman Davies, the Hatton Massacre was deliberately exploited by the Soviet authorities to cover up the Katyn Massacre, and this was a major reason for erecting the memorial was done in order to cause confusion with Katyn among foreign visitors. According to 2011 data, the memorial was in the top 10 of the most attended touristic sites in Belarus. That year it was visited by 182,000 people. And of course, the Soviets 
pulled Catton off the map. In the article, Catton versus Hatton, Another Soviet Hoax, by Louis Fitzgibbon, an article written just after President Nixon's visit to the Soviet memorial, he writes, President Nixon's visit to the memorial in the Belarusian village of Hatton has caused a mistaken impression that Russia has erected a memorial to the victims of the wartime massacre of Polish officers in the Katyn forest. In fact, Hatton and Katyn are two entirely different places. Hatton, in which the KH is pronounced like the English H, is a small village some 30 miles to the northeast of Minsk, the capital of Belarusia. Katyn, which is pronounced as written, is a town about 15 miles west of Smolensk. Hatton is about 160 miles west of Katyn. The Russians have tried to erase Katyn from maps and history books. The reference to it in the 1953 edition of the Soviet Encyclopedia was dropped in the 1973 edition. No visitors are allowed to the area, and no memorial has been erected. It wasn't until 1969 that the Russians announced the unveiling of a memorial complex on the site of the village of Hatton. The Russians appear to have chosen Hatton because of the similarity of its name to Katyn. They hoped in this way to obscure the fact they have erected no memorial to the victims of Katyn, which was no less a crime than the one committed at Hatton. Several things about this are interesting to note. President Nixon was taken by the Soviets to Hatton at the very time the Katyn Memorial Fund was fighting the Church of England for permission to erect the Katyn Memorial in London. The president's visit received wide publicity, the object so obviously being to occlude the issue and cause people to wonder, perhaps, why there was so much fuss in Britain to erect a memorial to the victims of Katyn when one already existed in Russia. It can only be that this extraordinary sleight of hand is a device to remove the real Katyn and substitute Hatton in an attempt, albeit clumsy, yet further to distract and confuse the world as to the whereabouts of massive crimes committed by the Soviets and substitute another alleged crime to Nazi Germany. Visitors to Russia are taken by the thousands to look at the memorial complex at Hatton. There they can procure a well-produced booklet in six languages. The English version opens with these words. It is the only one in the world, this mournful mound of black marble, and fire, crimson tongues of flames, is burning at the place where one more birch tree could grow, cheerfully rustling, and may there never be more such graveyards on earth. These pious words compare strangely with the Soviet use of napalm and poison gas against the Kurds in Afghanistan during that war. In short, Hatton is just an invention of the Soviets, like détente, which fools so many people, but in which they wish to believe, for they fear the truth. Arthur Fitzgibbon was with the British Navy from 1942 to 1954 when he retired with the rank of lieutenant. He served as chairman of the Catton Memorial Committee in London. He was the author of Catton, A Crime Without Parallel, and several other books. His words ring very true here. Old habits die hard. In the summer of 1998, a U.S. corporation sponsored an exhibit of World War II photographs from the Russian Army Museum at the Ronald Reagan Building in downtown Washington. Incredibly, in a souvenir program sold at the exhibit, the Russian exhibitors repeated the Soviet lie that the Nazis, not the NKVD, 
had murdered the Polish prisoners at Katyn. And here's the story of the airplane crash that killed Polish President Lech Kaczynski on April 4th of 2010. The article written by Will Cathcart is titled, Did Putin Blow Up the Whole Polish Government in 2010? A Second Look. On April 4th, 2010, Polish President Lech Kaczynski was killed in a plane crash near the Katyn Forest in Russia, where he was flying to honor the 22,000 Polish officers, lawyers, priests, and professors slaughtered there by the Soviets 70 years before. 95 other military, political, and public figures, including his wife, died on that plane. One of the more heartbreaking details to emerge was that First Lady Maria Kaczynski's body could be identified only by her nail polish and the inscription inside her wedding ring. Less than two years before the crash, the late president had given a speech warning that if Russian aggression was not stopped in Georgia, which Russia had invaded, it would extend to Ukraine, the Baltics, and possibly Poland again as well. We are here to take up the fight, he said, and many Poles still believe that their president died in the cause of that effort. Physicist Kazimierz Nowasik is one of them. On April 10, 2010, at 10.41 a.m., Polish Air Force Flight 101 crashed several hundred meters short of the Smolensk runway in dense fog. Within hours, the Russian government issued a statement citing the incident on pilot error. Russia's final report on the incident blamed the late President Kaczynski and his inebriated Air Force commander-in-chief for using psychological pressure to force the Polish pilot to land in a low-visibility environment. The plane's black boxes, laptops, sensitive documents, mobile phones, address books, telephone numbers, correspondence, and the top-secret military, NATO, and diplomatic codes on board were salvaged from crash site immediately by the Kremlin's operatives in what was a, quote, coup for Russia's intelligence service, end quote, according to retired CIA analyst Gene Podiat. What Noasik calls years' worth of work for security services was completed in a single day by Russia's Oman Special Purpose Police, which were immediately deployed to the site. The airplane was a 20-year-old Russian Tupolev 154M that had been refurbished and upgraded in Russia four months before, a detail that has become the subject of considerable speculation on the many forums and groups dedicated to investigating the conspiracy theory surrounding that flight. According to Podiat, 40 minutes before the crash, a Russian Yak-40 airplane with 40 people on board landed safely. 20 minutes before the crash, a Russian AWAC airplane did a touch-and-go at the airport, then flew on to Moscow. In an interview with the Daily Beast, Nowazik describes the findings of an independent Polish parliamentary committee investigating the crash, of which he is a member. The group consists of scientists from various backgrounds and relies only on scientific tools in its investigation, he said. But the committee was formed by Polish parliamentary factions, such as that of the late president's brother, Jarosław Kaczynski, who have not found the official Polish-Russian report on the incident satisfactory. From our point of view, this report was full of mistakes, Noasik explains, citing various inconsistencies and contradictions in the official narrative. 
A key issue raised by NOAA 6 Committee and the many online forums dedicated to the crash is that the amount of debris found at the site, an estimated 60,000 aircraft fragments, would be impossible in the case of a simple plane crash. He cites the 1988 Lockerbie bombing and the 1996 TWA-800 flight out of New York, both of which exploded in the air but had only 11,000 aircraft fragments and 3,168 fragments respectively. Both planes were reconstructed to 95% completion. Noasek believes that an explosion caused the fragmentation of the Polish president's plane. In the official report, the plane's black boxes indicate that the aircraft's electricity was cut two to three seconds before the crash, which Noazik believes also was caused by that explosion. Like many of those pursuing these theories, Noazik personally knew four people who died in the crash, including the late president. The Polish physicist's voice grows faint, almost pleading. I simply want to know the truth. Now, you've heard one side of the story. I'm going to be fair and give you the other side of the story. Right up until the final moments, the altitude controller on the ground demanded that the pilots of the Russian-made Tu-154, carrying the Polish delegation, pull up. But the military pilots of Poland's Air Force One refused to execute the necessary maneuver for an unknown reason. Within seconds, all 96 on board Flight 101 were dead. The time was 10.41 a.m., And this in quotes, I was outside when I heard the plane. It was flying really low with one of its wings pointing down. It all happened so fast, it crashed into the trees and burst into a ball of fire, remembers eyewitness Igor Foman. It was obvious that no one was going to survive. The flames were as high as a five-story house. Ground control staff warned these were no conditions to land, but a request was still made to attempt a trial approach. Transcripts from the plane's black box flight recorder reveal the crew was acutely aware of the rapidly decreasing visibility, but also of the pressure to land as soon as possible from an unknown person aboard who would go crazy if they didn't. The facts show that a senior minister periodically entered the cockpit throughout the flight and that the chief of the Air Force himself was present in the cockpit at the time of the crash. Under these conditions, the pilots continued their approach. Having passed the point of no return, the plane began its final descent, but the dense fog and poor visibility meant that the crew had actually already missed their target and were coming into land some 15 meters below the runway. The terrain at the site of the crash is actually lower than the airfield itself, just a kilometer ahead. The base of the aircraft began to graze the tops of the trees when one particularly tall birch ripped a large chunk out of the left wing, causing the plane to roll. Within five seconds, the nose of the Tupolev 154 had hit the ground. At first, we didn't know that there was a crash, just that something had happened, that something was wrong. So we took a taxi from Katyn to here, the site of the crash, and came as fast as it was possible, shared Polish radio journalist Danka Waznika, who covered the crash. None of us believed it had happened. We were talking about it, but it was unreal, incredible. That sense of shock and disbelief reverberated around the world as the news began to spread that in a single moment Poland had suffered what its prime minister would later dub its worst tragedy since World War II. After the crash, there was a whole flood of phone calls from Poland. People were asking, is it true that President Kaczynski is dead? Remembers Polish radio journalist Radomir Sarnecki, who was waiting for the delegation to arrive in Smolensk. 
I do not know what to say, though I'm a journalist, and I had to say that my president is dead, crashed on a plane, Zarnecki says. The process of mourning for the Smolensk tragedy is being used as a political tool in Poland, insists Professor Tadeusz Iwinski, vice chairman of the Polish Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, who was supposed to be on the doomed Flight 101, but because he had already visited Katyn twice, he decided to offer his seat to a colleague who had never been there. Despite certain Polish politicians' imputations, only 8% of Poles share the opinion that Russian authorities have connections to the Polish president plane's crash, Tadeusz told RT. But old enmities die hard, and when it comes to convenient air crashes and missing persons, the Soviets, they just always seem to be around. Fast forward to Mikhail Gorbachev and Glasnost. In 1987, the Soviet president signed an agreement with the head of Poland's military government, General Wojciech Jaruzelski, for a joint historical commission to investigate blank spots, that is, censored subjects, in the two countries' troubled history. Polish historians tried unsuccessfully to include Katyn on the agenda. The commission did provide a forum, however, for Polish historians to press their Soviet counterparts for access to official records even if to confirm the Burdenko Commission's conclusions. There were, after all, court historians on both sides. Gorbachev had a chance to address Katyn during a July 1988 state visit to Warsaw, but dodged the issue. Pressure was building on the Soviets, however. Prominent Polish intellectuals signed an open letter asking for access to official records and sent it to Soviet colleagues. A month after Gorbachev's visit, demonstrators paraded in the streets of Warsaw demanding an official inquiry. The Kremlin had to do something. It chose to deceive. In November, the Soviet government announced plans for a new memorial at Katyn commemorating Polish officers who, together with 500 Soviet prisoners, were shot by the fascists in 1943 as our army approached Smolensk. This was not true and the change of dates was a further obfuscation. But more important was the subliminal message directed to the Poles. Russia and Poland were both victims of German aggression, something neither country should forget. In early 1989, three top Soviet officials sent Gorbachev a memorandum warning him that the issue was becoming more acute, and that time is not our ally. Some form of official admission, even a partial one, would have to be made. At a Kremlin ceremony on 13th of October, 1990, Gorbachev handed Jaruzelski a folder of documents that left no doubt about Soviet guilt. He did not, however, make a full and complete disclosure. Missing from the folder was the March 1940 NKVD execution order. Gorbachev laid all blame on Stalin's secret police chief, Lavrenti Beria, and his deputy. This was a safe move because Berea and his deputy had been branded criminals and summarily shot by Stalin's successors. Gorbachev also failed to mention that the actual number of victims was 21,857 at Katyn alone, more than the usually cited figure of 15,000. By shaving the truth, Gorbachev had shielded the Soviet government and the Communist Party, making Katyn look like a rogue secret police action. Rather, than an official act of mass murder. The next major discovery turned up in an unexpected place, the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. 
while conducting research on Katyn at the archives in the spring of 1990, a Polish-American art and antiques expert named Wakla Gadziemba Malazuski was given a copy of an article entitled The Katyn Enigma, New Evidence in a 40-Year Riddle that had appeared in the spring 1981 issue of Studies in Intelligence. It was written by CIA officer and NPIC analyst Robert G. Poirier, who used imagery from Luftwaffe aerial photo reconnaissance during World War II to uncover evidence of the original crime and a Soviet cover-up during 43-44. The imagery, selected from 17 sorties flown between 1941 and 44, and spanning a period before, during, and after the German occupation of the Smolensk area, was important evidence. Among other things, it showed that the area where the mass graves were located had not been altered during the German occupation and that the same area displayed physical changes that predated the Germans' arrival. It also captured the NKVD on film, bulldozing some of the Polish graves and removing bodies. Poirier speculated that the corpses had been removed and reburied at another site. At the National Archives, Godziemba Malazuski located the same imagery that Poirier had used. He also found additional shots of Katyn and the other two execution sites at Mednoy and near Kharkov. He discovered much additional imagery, new collateral evidence, and eyewitness testimony, resulting in important new conclusions about what actually happened at Katyn. After completing further research in January of 1991, Godziemba Malazuski turned over copies of the imagery and Poirier's article to scientists at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow. They in turn passed the information to the Polish Ministry of Justice. The ministry had to be convinced that the article and photographic evidence were bona fide and that Koziemba Malazuski was not, as some suspected, a CIA agent. Stefan Sniezgo, Poland's deputy general prosecutor, then gave an interview to the German newspaper Tages Spiegel, published on the 12th of May, 1991. This was the first public disclosure of the Luftwaffe imagery and its utility for identifying burial sites in the USSR. This disclosure had an immediate impact in Germany, where media interest in Katyn had been running high since the 80s, and in the USSR as well. Armed with this smoking gun, a Polish prosecutor assigned to investigate Soviet crimes flew to Kharkov, now Kharkiv, where the Ukrainian KGB, under watchful Russian eyes, assisted in identifying a series of sites including Piatikatki, where prisoners from the Starbelt camp had been executed. Ironically, for a second time, the German military had provided evidence, albeit unwittingly, of Soviet complicity in the massacre. The new evidence put additional pressure on the Soviet Union and later the Russian Federation to reveal the full truth. In 1992, Moscow suddenly discovered the original 1940 execution ordered signed by Stalin and five other Politburo members in Gorbachev's private archive. Gorbachev almost certainly had read it in 1989, if not earlier. In October of 1992, Russian President Boris Yeltsin presented a copy of the order along with 41 other documents to the new Polish president, former Solidarity leader Lech Walesa. In doing so, he made a point of chiding his arch-enemy Gorbachev, with whom he was locked in a bitter domestic political battle. During a 1993 visit to Warsaw's military cemetery, 
Yeltsin knelt before a Polish priest and kissed the ribbon of a wreath he had placed at the foot of the Katyn cross. In a joint statement with Walesa, he pledged to punish those still alive who had taken part in the massacre and make reparations, a promise that has not been kept. Meanwhile, Soviet and Polish teams were permitted to excavate at Katyn and the other two sites on a selective basis where Polish prisoners had been executed. In 1994, a Soviet historian published a book that for the first time called Katyn, A Crime Against Humanity. And back to the CIA report. Katyn is a wound that refuses to heal. In May of 1995, officials from Russia, Poland, Ukraine, and Belarus announced their intention to end an official probe into NKVD crimes committed there and at other sites. But even that announcement revealed new information that had long been known in the West. Stalin's secret police had committed crimes against some 11,000 Poles living in western Ukraine and western Belarusia after the USSR had incorporated those regions and murdered more than 3,000 Polish prisoners in panic killings when Germany attacked in June of 1941. The article continues, Russians cannot look at Katyn without seeing themselves in the mirror of their own history. Thus, official Moscow resists using the G-word, genocide, to describe the atrocity. When Gorbachev's advisors warned him in 1989 that Poland's demand for the truth contained a subtext that the Soviet Union is no better and perhaps even worse than Nazi Germany, and that the Soviet Union was no less responsible for the outbreak of World War II and the 1939 defeat of the Polish army. They were also thinking of undercurrents in their own country. Russian intellectuals were already beginning to equate communism with fascism and Stalin with Hitler. Reports of vandalized war memorials and looted battlefield cemeteries underscored growing popular disillusionment with the cult of triumphalism built around Stalin and the USSR's victory over Nazi Germany. Now, some Russian revisionists go so far as to claim that Hitler's invasion launched a preventive war aimed at forestalling Stalin's plan to strike Germany first, a view that even Western historians reject. In June of 1998, Yeltsin and Polish President Alexander Kwasniewski agreed that memorial complexes under construction at Katyn and Mednoy, the two NKVD execution sites on Russian soil, but that didn't end the controversy. Two days earlier, speaking at a ceremony in the Ukrainian village of Piatikatki, the site of the third killing field, Kwasniewski declared that Poland has a duty to continue speaking the truth about Katyn until Russians and Poles reach some mutual understanding about their past. Katyn will continue to cast a shadow over their futures. And this is where the article ends. Guilty governments and guilty people can amass mountains of lies. We see that every day in our world. There are lessons to be learned here. There are many who have access to the spoken and, more importantly, the printed word, who feel the need to twist the truth to protect. And you can pick one here. Protect their political beliefs and parties. Protect their reputations, their countries, their lives, their social status, their jobs, their opinions, their power, their wealth their guilty associates, their wrongdoings, and their actual crimes. You don't have to look far today to find, in many countries, very one-sided, powerful media machines firmly attached to the hip to one political party and actively choosing 
what news to report or not to report, based upon predetermined templates of political dogma. That same fifth column press, you can pick the country, the media machine, and the political party, is usually anchored by many university professors, many of whom share that same one-sided view of politics or selective history or even climatology in order to keep their jobs, their access to grants, and their status in their professional communities. The group think seems almost comical to outsiders, yet it is dead serious to those inside the bubble. What has all this taught us? At the very least, trust minimally what you read and hear in the news, and try your best to verify from a number of sources. Listen to all points of view. Accept nothing as dogma. It's your guess as to how much history has been and will be rewritten to fit one-sided views. Do you think Chinese children are being taught today that only 60 years ago, Chinese leader Mao Zedong's great move forward killed 45 million innocent Chinese men, women, and children in just four years? Doubtful. He made Cambodia's Pol Pot look like a piker with his four million innocents murdered. Are Russian children taught today that the revered Russian leader Joseph Stalin, in partnership with Hitler, was a killer psychopath who ordered the slaughter of over 20 million Europeans in hundreds of villages and forest communities like Katyn, and killed over 25 million of his own Russian people in non-military actions? Are Japanese children being taught of the rape of Nanking, China, on December 13, 1937, or their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor? or the horrific torture, death marches, and slaying of hundreds of thousands of Allied prisoners during World War II, not for the purpose of self-preservation, as being taught, but of sharing the plundered riches of China, Burma, Australia, the Philippines, the Pacific Islands, and whatever resources they could sell to their German, Italian, and Russian allies. And for those of you who might have missed that day's history class, Italy and Russia entered the war on the side of Nazi Germany and Japan, known as the Axis powers, and ended the war on the winning side of the Allies. It took atom bombs and hundreds of thousands of lives to end Japan's part in this human tragedy and flatten Germany, although Stalin and Mayo and Pol Pot still persisted, and others will always come to fill the void. The truth in all these cases is just too hard to comprehend, if from zero to one lives lost is an infinity, where does 10 or 20 or 40 million lives lost leave us? How many stars in the skies? How many cruel deaths? Leave it to the historians and government spin masters to apply decades of whitewash to generations of newly born innocents so they won't have to count mankind's greatest sins. And all this terrible carnage within the 100 most recent of our 6,000 years of civilized history. Now, how far have we come? Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. 1001 Heroes and its sister show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, is heard all around the English-speaking world by you. And if each one of you listening now can forward this episode to two friends and give us a referral, it would be greatly appreciated. Or Twitter, at 1001podcast. Or Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. This is your host and storyteller, 
John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>